Well, I may not look it, but I played football for four years in high school. I didn't say I played it well, uh, but, but I played. And, and it's interesting. I have a lot of memories associated with that time, um, a lot of kind of struggles and strains, but I'm really glad I did it. But one of the most kind of interesting things or uh, memorable things about playing football there in South Texas for four years is that every practice afterwards we would kneel down and we would recite this thing. And I didn't know what that thing was at the beginning, but I came to know later it was the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and so I didn't grow up in church. I didn't have any kind of knowledge of things. My, my kind of understanding of who Jesus was, was was very scant growing up. So, you know, at first when I'm there the first day of practice and everybody's chanting this thing, if you will, repeating this thing, I just kind of mumbled, you know, moved my mouth along the way. But over time, I began to know what the words are. And so I still have it memorized to this day because of my years in, in high school football. But it's interesting. I didn't become a Christian until late, uh, late in college. And so though I had memorized those words, I really didn't know what I was saying. I didn't really know what I was talking about. I didn't really understand what I was asking as I said those words. And I think, unfortunately, that's how many Christians are. Many Christians may, you know, recite the, the Lord's Prayer or what we might call the model prayer, but we don't really think about what it means. We don't really think about the, the impact of it. And so I just want to bring out one verse from the model prayer. And it's Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. I'll read it for you. You're familiar with it. It says, you, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so for us as Christians, we may have said that hundreds or even thousands of times, but I wonder how often we think about that. I wonder how often we think about, well, what does that really mean? What would my life actually look like if God established his kingdom in my heart, in my mind? How would that change how I, and what would that look like if he established that kingdom here on earth? And what would that be like? And so it's important for us to realize that that prayer is actually the heart of the obedient believer. That that prayer is to say, Lord, would you establish your kingdom in my heart, in my mind, in my soul? Would you establish your kingdom in my family? Would you establish your kingdom here on this earth? And so also, one of the things that we, we don't often think about it, for us as believers, we have a lot of complaints about how this world is. We have a lot of complaints about how things uh, take place and how things are going, whether it's politically or economically or socially and all these things. And what we may not realize, that divine discontent we often have with this fallen world is actually angst because this prayer has not yet been fulfilled. Because Christ's kingdom has not come fully into our lives. Christ's kingdom has not fully come upon this earth. But the good news is his kingdom is going to come. The, the, the good news is there's a day coming when he's going to establish that kingdom here on earth. But you know what? <clears throat> so often we feel weak and you know, disenfranchised and there's nothing I can really do because we can't really control that kingdom around us. But you know what? We can participate in his kingdom coming in our lives. We can participate and say, as much as it depends on me with the, the, the aid of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to seek to be a kingdom citizen. I'm going to seek to be a person who follows Jesus Christ with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's really what we're looking at in these two psalms today. Here in Psalm 72 and Psalm 73, what we're going to see is this desire for, for God's kingdom to come. And also, as we get into Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms, the discontent of Asaph really has to do with the fact that his kingdom hasn't come yet. So for you and I, there's going to be that tension. 
There's going to be that balance where we are never going to feel completely at home in this world. And if you're in a place right now where you feel completely at home in this fallen world, let's talk afterwards. Because <laughs> that's not good. And, and so, but at the same time, we don't want to just either you know, remove ourselves from society or just give up and become fatalistic. We want to pursue God's kingdom. We want to pursue the things of the Lord in the power of the Spirit, hoping that as we are influencers, that his kingdom spreads out from us and impacts the lives of those around us. So with that as our introduction, would you move into Psalm 72 now? And we have something a little bit different with Psalm 72. We have a Psalm of Solomon. So many of the Psalms that we've covered so far have either been written by David or by someone, you know, anonymous person we don't know of, but this is one that's written by Solomon. And so I want to look at the first four verses as we get going. So Solomon writes, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and, poor, and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. Okay. So what Solomon is doing here, we have to kind of back up a little bit and think about, well, who is Solomon? You know, what's, what's the deal with Solomon? Well, we know that the first king of Israel was Saul, okay? And then, uh, you know, Saul was removed from authority, and then the next, you know, major king that came along was King David. And then after King David came his son, Solomon. So Solomon was a king, we'll remember that. And so what Solomon is really asking for in these first four verses is he's asking for wisdom that he might rule Israel properly. That's really the heart behind it, is that Solomon is asking for this wisdom. Now, as we move through Psalm 72, what we're going to find, this is not only about Solomon. We're going to also find that there's some prophecies of the Messiah as we move through this. And so kind of keep an eye out for that. But as we think about this, Solomon asking for wisdom, would you turn to 1 Kings for just a moment? So going to turn uh, left a little bit uh, to 1 Kings. And you guys know the joke, it's before 2 before Kings. Uh, but 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 14. As we kind of examine this idea of seeking wisdom so that we might lead or rule correctly. 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 4 through 14. Now, we covered this recently in, in men's discipleship. I didn't mean for this to be a little plug here, but it worked out. And so 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 4, what we have is Solomon asking for wisdom. So let's pick up the story. It says, now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. And this is Solomon. Uh, that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what shall I give you? It's pretty big. It's a radical thing that God shows up to Solomon in a dream and says, what do you want? I see that you're following after me. What is it that I can give to you? And so we see that Solomon answers in verse 6. Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God. You have made your servant king instead of my father, David, and I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Now, 
Solomon's not five years old here. <laughs> well, I'm just a little guy, and I don't know what to do. That's not what's going on here. When Solomon says that he's a child, he doesn't know. He's basically saying, I have this big job ahead of me. I, I, I'm, I'm the, the king over Israel, and I don't want to depend on my own understanding. I don't want to depend on my own ability. I, I don't want to just try to figure this out. I need help. Okay, I, need, I need someone to, to teach me, to instruct me. It says in verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have not asked, sorry, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I've done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I've also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Okay. So what we have here is this desire to ask for, or his desire for wisdom. And then God says, well, not only am I going to give you wisdom, but I'm also going to give you, you know, riches, and I'm going to give you honor, and I'm going to give you all these kind of things. And so this wonderful prayer that God answers. Now, as we turn back to Psalm 72 now, kind of want to bring out a couple more things here. It's an application for what we saw with Solomon. Number one is, ask for wisdom to carry out your calling. Right? As I look around at all of us in this room, I don't think any of us has been called by God to rule the nation of Israel. <laughs> right? And so that's not exactly the same, but we want to take this application and we see that wisdom, asking for wisdom was pleasing to God. Well, each of us have a calling. Each of us have something that God has called us to. Each of us have gifting by the Holy Spirit. If you're a born-again believer, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to carry out your calling. So ask for wisdom in that. And I would encourage you to, to often go back to the scriptures. Psalm 119 tells us, you know, that it's, it's God's word that makes us wise. And so as we're asking for wisdom, I think one of the best things to do is not to just sit and say, Lord, would you give me wisdom and never crack a book and never listen to anybody, but say, Lord, would you give me wisdom as I study your word? As I study your word, would you help me to understand it and internalize it and to walk in it? Because the, the greatest people who have ever lived, who have made the, the, the greatest impact on planet Earth, are been believers. Because they make an impact that lasts beyond the, their short lifetime, the, the lasts beyond just this fallen world. And so it's important for us to seek that wisdom from the word of God. Then also, secondly, also pray for leaders to be given wisdom. Okay, if you see me up here floundering through the word of God, just like, Lord, give him some wisdom, <laughs> you know, just help him out. We want to pray for leaders because it's very easy for us to get onto Facebook and talk bad about leaders. It's very easy for us to get on social media or to listen to the things or to, to, to say, oh, this is about leaders. You know what? That's easy. Instead, pray for leaders. I would encourage you to pray for leaders to be given wisdom. This is what Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. 
He says, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So it's good. So pray for wisdom for your calling. Also, pray for leaders to be given wisdom as well. All right, let's move on to verses 5 through 7, Psalm 72. It says, They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish, and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Okay, so the big idea from verses 5 through 7 is that righteous government leads to prosperity. Okay, righteous government leads to prosperity. And this, this is on the macro level, and this is on the micro level. This works you know, kind of a national level, this works on the familial level. That, that if, if you lead in a righteous way, then there's a prosperity to that. There's a human flourishing. But whenever people depart from the wisdom of God and they seek to, to you know, rule by the, the fallen ideas and philosophies of men, then what happens is things go poorly. Now, with that in mind, please remember, and this is, this is going to be an easy one for you to agree with, that there's going to be no completely righteous government until the Lord Jesus reigns in his millennial kingdom. Okay, it's, it's never happened, never in human history. It not when they were at Sinai, not when David ruled, not any of these times. Never has there been a time in human history where there's been a completely righteous government. It just hasn't happened. There won't be one until Jesus Christ rules and reigns during his millennial kingdom. And so that's what we're looking forward to. Now, our response is not to be, well, since there's not going to be a completely righteous government until then, I should just give up. I should just wait, get in my pajamas, sit on the roof, wait for the rapture. Okay? No, that's not what we're to do. Jesus said, occupy until I come. Right? Go about. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And so we're called to participate in this world to, to bring Christ with us wherever we go, but at the same time realize it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be as it should be. So the lesson for us is really is to pray and to be a godly citizen, but don't put your hope in those people or systems. And that's what we've seen, and it's really happened all throughout human history, is that people, though they know they should only worship God and put their trust in him, they see some figure you know, some governmental figure, and he becomes an idol for them. And he becomes like, oh, he's going to be the one, or she's going to be the one, and they're going to be the one. And it's just not going to happen. God can use people like us, but, but none of us are going to be the ones to bring this about. And so please beware of that, because Christians, it's very easy for a Christian to lose their witness because they put all their hope in some man, some person, and that's just a very dangerous thing. This is what we read in, in Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Don't put your hope in man. Don't put your hope in people. Love people, pray for people, serve people. Put your trust only in the Lord. Okay, no man is worthy of your trust. No man is going to be, well, he's going to be the one to take us. No, 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 no. The Lord is the one that we are to trust. All right, verses 8 through 11 says, He shall have dominion from also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow down before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles bring, will bring presents, and the kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Now, okay, I want you to guys track with me for just a minute here in verses 8 through 11. I love film. And I love kind of like how it's done. I like studying about it. It's, it's very interesting to me. So I want to paint a picture for you in your mind. So, so you're, you're watching. So it's a, it's, it's a camera shot. And in the camera shot, you have Solomon. And behind him is the nation of Israel. Okay? It's a pastoral scene. You know, it's out in a field. And then what happens is the camera pulls back. And it widens out. And so Solomon and Israel, they kind of fade there in the distance. And now as it moves out, what you see is you see the Messiah and you see the whole world. That's what we have in verses 8 through 11. We're shifting away from Solomon and Israel. We're panning out. And now as it enlarges, now it's the Messiah and the whole world. That's what we're moving into. We're moving into this, this, this fact, this millennial kingdom, when the day is coming when Christ is going to rule. And here's the good news. He's going to do this whether or not we participate in that. Because sometimes we kind of have this false view of like, well, if I don't do my part, man, Jesus isn't going to get it done. <laughs> now, Jesus, please don't misunderstand me. The Lord Jesus wants each and every one of us to fulfill the calling he has for us. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, you know, that, that we've been created for good works, that we should walk in them. That he wants us to do this thing. But if we refuse and we say, you know what, I'm not going to serve the Lord. Well, we miss out on that and we miss out on those rewards. But guess what? He knew we were going to miss out on that. He knew we weren't going to participate. Do you think he put all his eggs in our basket? <laughs> See, what I'm trying to, to encourage you toward is he wants your participation, but he doesn't need your participation. Okay, God's not weak. God's, God's not up in, in heaven kind of, you know, hand on head just wondering, I wonder if they're going to get it done because my plan can't go forward without them. He chooses to use us, but he doesn't need to use us. And that brings great freedom for you and I, because we realize that though we live or die, what's going to happen is he's going to bring about his kingdom. It's very encouraging. And so I wanted to have you turn to Isaiah for just a moment. Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 2? So turn to your right a little bit. Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to see a prophecy of this millennial kingdom. So as you're turning there, you know, so I, I just want to kind of give you a, a brief overview of, of what's next kind of on the world scene, right? The, the rapture of the church is the, the next prophetic thing that we're, we're waiting on. And then there's going to be the seven-year tribulation period. Then there'll be the return of Christ at the end of that tribulation period. And then what Christ will do next is he'll establish his millennial kingdom. He'll establish his thousand-year reign. And so what we have here in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, are our prophecy of this millennial kingdom. It says, the, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, he says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. 
For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So that's what we have to look forward to. And so what, what happens for you and I as we study this, as we think about the, this, this government of the Messiah that's coming, it'll encourage us. It'll encourage us to say, well, I'm going to keep on going because I want to be a part of this kingdom someday. That's, I'm going to participate in that. That's an exciting thing. So, so with this in mind, would you turn back now to Psalm 72? And I want you to see once again the end of verse 11. It says, yes, all the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. All nations shall serve him. Every nation is going to serve Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. That's exciting. This is something you and I are looking forward to. This is what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the day is coming when everyone who's ever lived whether they do this willingly or begrudgingly, are going to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. They acknowledge he's their creator, that he's the boss over all. And so for you and I, I want to encourage you as people who are already bowing the knee before Jesus Christ, that you're at least partially fulfilling your kingdom come because you're acknowledging Jesus Christ as king. And so this is one of the things that the Lord's put on my heart of what I want to, to do in this fellowship and kind of why I'm teaching and why I'm leading the way that I do is I want to prepare you for the millennial kingdom. I want to prepare you for heaven. I want you to be a people who start living your life that way now so when you get there, it's, it's not such a steep learning curve. That you've already prepared yourself for that. So if you look around and the whole world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, you can say, well, I'm not going that way. I'm going to bow the knee before Jesus Christ. In my own life, I'm going to participate in his kingdom coming. And you, I guarantee you, God is going to use that witness. I guarantee you that as you seek to be obedient to Christ in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your church, anywhere else you go, God is going to use that witness. Not because he has to or he needs to, but because he wants to. All right, let's continue on. Verses 12 through 14, it says, For he will deliver the needy when he cries. And so again, this is speaking of the Messiah. The poor also, and him who has no helper, he will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And so in the millennial kingdom, is going to be typified by true justice and compassion and righteousness. And there's all kinds of talk, we understand that, right? Of justice and compassion and righteousness and all that kind of stuff. None of those words mean anything if they're not based on Christ. If it's just based on some human understanding, it's not gonna work. And so the, the, the fact of the matter is this millennial kingdom is going to be, again, typified by justice, truth, compassion, righteousness, all those things. And we say, well, that's great, but who knows when that's gonna get here. Again, participate in that now by living this sort of life now. You can live this sort of life talked about here in verses 5 through 14. Is actually if you seek to go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and say as much as possible, as much as the Holy Spirit will empower me to do this, I want to live this sort of life. If you and I 
take it seriously and say, I want to I live a Sermon on the Mount sort of life. I, I want to walk in this kind of life. That what's going to happen is we're going to see that. We're going to see the evidences of the kingdom around us. Let's continue on now. Verses 15 through 17 says, and he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made to him continually and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain and the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon and of those of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. So this is a bunch of praise to the Messiah. And, and so, um, and again, this righteous rulers lead to abundance. When the Messiah is ruling, then it leads to abundance. It leads to prosperity. And, and so I would encourage you to, as you kind of think about these verses and you think about what's going on here, is just to remind yourself, Jesus isn't going away. <laughs> Jesus is for always. So often we're disappointed in this life because we put our hope in things that fade. We put our hope in some athlete, and you know what? Then that athlete's not as good as it used to be. We put our hope in, in some vehicle, and that vehicle doesn't run like it used to. Or we put our hope in our own bodies, and our own bodies are breaking down. We put our hope in all of these temporary things. We need to put our, place our hope in Jesus Christ. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not fading away. Jesus is not in heaven fretting about, like, am I going to work this thing out? I don't know if I can. He has got it covered. And so the more that we put our hope in him, we're, we're going to have that peace that surpasses all understanding. Verses 18 and 19 says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Okay, so this is praise to God, blessing to God. It'd be great to go back over that and pray through those things. But we, we see this Solomon overflowing as he, as he focuses on the Lord, praying to him, praising him. And then here in verse 20, we have a little transition verse. It says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And so this is just a little transition for us where we're moving to the, what's, what's referred to as book three of the Psalms. We see this in Psalm 73 through 89. And so let's go ahead and move on to Psalm 73. And so we move from a Psalm written by Solomon to a Psalm written by Asaph. Now Asaph was a psalmist and a musician who lived during the times of David and Solomon both. So kind of overlap those two ministries. Now, what's so interesting here in Psalm 73 that I really had never noticed before, even though it is one of my favorite psalms, um, as I was doing a little more study this week, it's actually broken up into four parts. This psalm was broken up into four parts, and it's broken up on the pronouns that are focused on, okay? So the first part, the main pronoun is going to be they. It's going to be all about they, 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 they. The next pronoun is going to be I. The third pronoun will be you. And the fourth one will be you and I, okay? And so it's, so it's interesting. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to wade into all the stuff about pronouns these days, okay? I'm not going to wade into that. What I am going to say is the pronouns we focus on, okay, are going to determine our heart condition. And that's what we're going to see here, okay? So the first one we're going to see is they, and we're going to find they in verses 1 through 12. So starting in verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Now, that'd be a great verse to underline, box, asterisk, memorize, all of those things. 
Because this is our starting point for this psalm. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. That's where he's starting with right here. Okay, and this is vital. Please hear me. If you and I are to walk steadily in faith, it is vital that we believe God is good. It's got to start there. Okay, it's got to start there. If we get up every morning wondering, I wonder if God is good today. I wonder if he's going to do the right thing today. I wonder if I can count on his character and his plan and his purpose today. I wonder. We are going to live disjointed lives. But if we say, you know what, no matter what things look at, the scripture tells me, my experience with God tells me that God is good, that he's going to work it out, that he's got a purpose and a plan, he knows what he's doing. If we can start from there, then we can weather all kinds of storms. But, but if, if we're undecided on that, we have a problem. And so if you're in that place today and you're undecided about the goodness of God, then, then it's important that you do something about that. And now, and I, I can't just tell you, hey, believe that God is good. I can't make you believe something you don't, right? So what can we do? You know, if, if, if we need to, if it's vital that we believe that God is good, well, how do we build that faith? Well, it, has, it happens as we keep our eyes on the Lord. Well, well, how do we do that? How do I look? If I really want to know if God is good, where do I go? Well, I encourage you toward this. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of the Father that we're going to get. And, and so if we want to know if God is good, see if Jesus is good. So, so if you kind of want, I, I just don't know, and I don't know, is, is go back to the Gospels and see if Jesus is good. Jesus said this about himself in Luke chapter 14, verse 9. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? We'll go to the Son. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit more on that. So would you turn to Hebrews? Turn to the near the end of your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 1. Okay, because here's what we do. As you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 really quick. Um, we have a tendency to look around on the Internet on TV, circumstance, and judge by circumstance whether or not God is good. To judge by how we're feeling that day if God is good. Those are not good ways. Circumstances changes. Our feelings changes. Our emotions change. If we want to judge whether or not God is good, we need to see if Jesus Christ is good. Okay? And, and this, is, this is where I'm making my case. Hebrews chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 3. It says, God, so speaking of God the Father, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's all kinds of things to bring out of there, and I taught through Hebrews, and you can listen to it online if you like. But, but here's what the, the, the author to the Hebrews is telling us. He says, God spoke to the prophets and spoke to us in a bunch of different ways, but his foolish, uh, sorry, his fullest and, and uh, you know, revelation of himself is the Son. So when you and I, we find ourselves in a dark place and the clouds are moving in and we're overwhelmed and the storm is happening, I would encourage you to go back to the Gospels. Go back to the Gospels, just you and Jesus, and say, Jesus, would you show me who you are? 
Would you show me that you're good? Because that's really what we need. We don't necessarily need a, you know, a bunch of you know, line items about, oh, this is how you can. We need a person. We need the person of Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you that when you move through the Gospels, you know, the Holy Spirit in enlightening you, giving you understanding, then what's going to happen is you're going to be reminded, yeah, yeah, God is good. And he's going to put everything else into perspective, but you need to come back to the Son. All right, let's move back to Psalm 73, if you would. So we've established, okay, we've established this, that, that God is good. Okay, that's where the psalmist starts. It says, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But notice the transition in verse 2, but as for me. Okay, so the psalmist is saying, Asaph is saying, I'm somebody different. God is good, but he's making a transition. He's making a contrast. He's making a distinction between God who's always good and Asaph who's not always good. Right? That, that's, that's important that we understand that. And so I want you to remind yourself as often as needed that you are not God. <laughs> I want you to look into the mirror and say, not God. You got to do that because this world wants to sell you a lot of stuff. And they want to say that you are God. Burger King used to be have it your way to their new saying is you rule. Well, who rules? Kings rule. You and I aren't kings. You and I are servants of the king. And so it's important for us to remind ourselves that we're not God. That God is good, but we're not always. And so here in verse 2, it says, but as for me, and then he moves in, as for me, my feet had almost, my, had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. Now, this is, this is difficult imagery. Now, maybe some of you experienced it this week. Maybe you went out when it was icy. <laughs> you know, and so you know what this is like. You know, and, and all of us have stumbled at some point. All of us have, have slipped down from some time to time. And it's interesting, when you're young, you do that, and you pop back up. When you're old, you're like, I'm going to have to wait for help. <laughs> you know, I'm going to need somebody to, to participate in this. But the, the imagery is that we're to walk with the Lord, right? That's the imagery. Let's walk with the Lord. I'm walking with the Lord. Well, if you're trying to walk with the Lord and you're stumbling and slipping, then that makes walking with the Lord very difficult. And there's something, I've only been skiing a few times, but you know, one thing that they taught me in ski school is don't look at your skis, look at where you're going, right? Because where you look at where you're going, that determines where you are going to go. So you and I, if we want to grow in Christ-likeness, it's vital that we keep our eyes on Christ. That he becomes our focus, that he's the one we look to. Because if we're looking everywhere but Christ, we're going to hit, spiritually speaking, a tree. It's, it's going to be challenging for us. And that's what we see that Asaph is going to have focused on. Look at verse 3. He says, for, and so this is the reason. This is the reason he slipped. This is the reason he stumbled. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What's his focus? His focus is on they, the unbelievers. Uh, he focused on the prosperity of evildoers. People were doing evil and it was benefiting them. And if you just go on any streaming service, there's all kinds of documentaries about wicked people who are prosperous. There's all kinds of documentaries about these people who build these elaborate earthly kingdoms because they're wicked. And you can watch that and it'd be very easy to, to envy them. And so some things never change. This still happens, right? Now, I want you to, as we move into verses 4 through 9, I want you to focus. Here's the, our they's. So we're going to have they and their and them. 
Uh, and it's, it's all focused on the ungodly. So verse four, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks throughout the earth. So notice all of his focus. His focus is on they. And who is a they? Unbelievers. He's focusing on unbelievers and all that they're doing. And so please understand what we have here is Asaph's focus leads to frustration. So if you and I are frustrated, we've got to examine our focus. What are we looking at? You know, or, or what are we focusing on? What are we thinking about? Where, or just what are we mulling over? What do we have the, the HD recording in our mind and we're rewinding it and we're slow-moing it and we're doing all of those things? That focus leads to frustration. So wrong focus leads to frustration all the time. That guy who cuts you off on the loop. <laughs> as long as you focus on him, you are going to be frustrated. That's what happens. Now, verses 10 through 12, he says, Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they, they say, how does God know, and where is knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease, they increase in riches. So Asaph is, he's fired up. He's frustrated. You know, he was, he was recording his blog that morning and telling about all the things that were going on. He was podcasting about the wicked. He was very, very angry. But, but in these verses, I want you to focus on verse 11 for just a moment, because really, this is a key to understanding the mind of an unbeliever. He says, and they say, how does God know, and where is the knowledge of the Most High? See, essentially, the heart of an unbeliever is God doesn't see, or there is no God, so I can do whatever I want. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. You know, famous Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky pointed out, if there is no God, then all is permitted. If there is no God, then people can do whatever they want. But, but the, the reality is that there is a God. And so if this God has created us for himself, then all of our attitudes and actions have consequences for good or for ill. And so, so it's important for us to, to really determine this in our heart because for even as unbelievers, I'm sorry, sorry, even as believers, we can, we can kind of go through the motions and, and God essentially becomes unreal to us. So at, um, oh, oh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there it is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he talked about this, about in the moment when a believer sins, God becomes utterly unreal to them. You know, when we're in that moment and we're about to sin, it's just like God vanishes from the scene. That's how we think about it. But, but here's the deal. If God is real, and he is, and if he is present, and he is, then all these kind of crazy things that happen in this world, he's going to deal with them. He's going to take care of them. He sees these things, and, but God doesn't settle all his accounts here right now. We want him to. We want God balance a checkbook. <laughs> Take care of all these things. Why are we, le God has his own timing and his own plan. We're going to remind ourselves, though, that, that God is real. Psalm 14, verse 1, says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's important. 
Because no matter how many PhDs a person may have, if they start from the premise that there is no God, scripturally speaking, they're a fool. They may know a lot about certain subjects, but they've missed the most important subject. Then we read this in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12. It says, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So in Ezekiel's time, there's all kinds of wickedness going on um, among the, people, the Israelites. And the reason why is they, like, God doesn't see us. We can do whatever we want. Now, for, for more on this subject, we turn near the end of your Bibles once again to 2 Peter. Because returning to 2 Peter, there's this false assumption that because God doesn't judge something immediately, he's not going to judge it. Right? There's the, there's the old thing, well, I'm about to do this thing, and if God doesn't want it done, may he strike me down. Yeah, you probably heard some variation of this. Think about that. Think about how if an unbeliever could just command God when to do what. The believer can't command God to do what to do when. So we have to understand that just because God doesn't judge something immediately doesn't mean he's not going to judge it. And so I want to give you some insight or a reminder for those of you who already know this passage. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-9, through 9, we're told why God doesn't judge things immediately. We're told why he doesn't take out the unbeliever the moment they, they are sinning in some way. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, says, Behold, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Right? This is what we're living in. We're living. There's lots of scoffers. Oh, God's letting, we're doing whatever we want. God's not judging. Everything's just the same. Nothing's going to change. There is no God. Peter says, guys, this is what's going to happen. But notice verse 5. For this they willfully forget. In other words, they forget on purpose that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. It's interesting. If you study the, the theory of evolution, you study a lot of kind of, you know, enlightenment thinking, one of the things that mankind has wanted to get rid of is, is the flood. It's one of the most, it was one of the, 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 the Christian doctrines that is most attacked as a flood because the flood is judgment. The flood is the judgment of the whole world except for eight people. And so Peter's saying that's how it is. They don't want to do that. But notice he says, but the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. In other words, God has a different reckoning of time than we do. God's going to do things according to his way. But here it is. Here's verse 9. Here's the reason why God doesn't judge immediately. It says, notice, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason why God didn't strike me dead when I was 21 years old in the midst of my ungodliness is because he wanted me to come to repentance. He wanted to bring me to himself. He wanted to adopt me as his son and give me a hope in the future. 
That's why God's doing what he's doing. That's why God's patiently enduring. That's why it's because of his great love. Because he's going to judge when he chooses to. But as we look around and say, well, why are the wicked prospering? Why are these doing these things? What we should be doing is saying, Lord, would you bring them to yourself? And would you give me the strength to endure in the midst of this? All right, let's turn back to Psalm 73. As we move into our, our second pronoun here, we're going to move into I, verses 13 through 17. So it's I, and so, it's, so Asaph is really focused on himself here. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. That's a powerful verse. Here's what Asaph is saying. He's saying, basically, serving the Lord has been a waste. It's been purposeless. That's how he felt in that moment. That's, that's how he felt. He, it, it seems... If we look through the scriptures, though, we look at this, and, and probably, if we're honest, we could say, I felt this way. Man, raising these kids, whew, doing this thing, working this job, reaching these people. It seems that every faithful believer feels like this from time to time. And this is how it is in the scriptures. You read about Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah, etc. You read about men and women from Christian history. You'll see that they're overwhelmed at times. And why am I doing this? Is it making a difference? That's part of the whole deal. Paul himself wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. He says, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. That Paul was overwhelmed and he's like, I I'm, I'm tired of living this whole thing. So... So, so please understand, if you're in that place, you felt that way, you feel that way now, or just like, ah, you're not alone. Okay, every Christian feels like this way from time to time. And, and it's interesting, though, and I, I just, I would encourage you to write down this reference. It's Isaiah 49, verse 4. It's a radical reference. It's actually a prophecy of the Messiah. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this is what the first part of Isaiah 49, 4 says. Then I said, and so this is the Messiah speaking. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. That's radical. That Jesus Christ in his humanity during his earthly ministry felt like this at times. You know, as, as the nation of Israel turned against him, as his own brothers rejected him, and all these things going around him, he felt like we feel. But the good news is he didn't stay that way because the second part of, of Isaiah 49 verse 4 says, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. So he felt that way as it's normal for us to feel in this difficulty, but he realized he knew that his reward is with the Father. And so there's great application for you and I. It's to say, I'm going to feel this way at times as a believer. This is not some unusual thing. But instead of keeping my focus on those around me who don't seem to be listening or leading or whatever it is, I'm going to get my focus back on the Lord because he's the one who's going to reward me. He's the one who I'm seeking to please. That's why Paul was able to write in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You may feel like your work is in vain. Somebody else may tell you that your work is in vain, but the Lord says your work is not in vain. Right? If it's done for him, it's not in vain. All right, let's continue on to verse 14 now. He says, For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. And so he's basically, Asaph is basically saying, Serving God has only increased my trouble, it's only made things more difficult. I have more obstacles than I've ever had. And guess what? God chastens me. <laughs> 
You know, now when I do the wrong thing, I get that spiritual spanking. And, and so, so that's how he's, he's just feeling overwhelmed. And then here it is, verse 15. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. In other words, if Asaph had just kind of spewed all this out before getting perspective, he, he would have misrepresented God. He, he would have sh- um, shown God to be something that he's really not. And so here it is in verses 16 and 17, the transition begins. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. He couldn't make sense of it. Couldn't figure it out. He's overwhelmed. And so what does he do? Notice verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Once his focus moved from they and I to God, then everything changed. Okay, and so this is our next pronoun here. It's going to be in verses 18 through 22, and it's you. Okay, and so what we see here with Asaph, a correct focus leads to a correct perspective. A correct focus leads to correct perspective. God is the only one who could truly give you proper perspective. I can help you and try to aid you, but the one who really has to make it happen is the Lord. The Lord has to be the one. And so that's what we have here. Let's look at verses 18 through 20. He says, Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. That means, that Lord, it says, Lord, when you awake, we know that the God of Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. What he's basically saying is like, awake to judgment. When you decide that you're going to judge, you'll do this thing. And so what we have here is verses 18 through 20. I want you to notice the, the contrast with verse 2. In verse 2, he says, I had almost stumbled, I had almost slipped. But now it says, it's actually, it's they are, that are in slippery places. And so it's the unbeliever who's in a slippery place. It's they who are under judgment. It's, uh, death can come for them at any time. Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, so, so what's the application for you and I as we look at this world that's kind of run amok is pray for the Lord to draw people to himself and then also trust the Lord that whenever judgment does need to come, God is perfectly able to bring judgment, right? It's just to trust him that, you know, I've said it often and it's still true. There are no help wanted signs in the Trinity. Okay, the Trinity has it covered, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're, they're not, what, oh, Steve, you think we should judge right now? Oh, well, well, come on. No, no, that's not how he does things. We can trust that he's going to take care of it when he wants to. All right, verses 21 and 22 says, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So he's expanding. So Asaph's, this was Asaph's state when he had the wrong focus, when he was focusing on they or I. And so here's, here's the truth. And please hear me. This is the word of God. A failure to understand God's ways reduces us to a beastly status. Really does. Look around. This world, people just go by their beastly instincts. Right? When they reject God, then that, that whole idea of if it feels good, do it, that is a beastly mentality. That, that, that's how my dogs behave. But, you know, my, my dogs don't sit around and just like, I, I wonder what would be good today to do, you know, morally, ethically. They don't do that. It's just whatever they want to do. 
You know, when they know it's time to be fed, they are just jumping and crazy because that's all they can think about. So for you and I, if we reject the truth of God's word, it reduces us to a beastly status. So we got to combat that beastliness, that fallenness in ourselves, and say, I want, to, I want to have my mind changed, transformed by the, the word of God. It's going to help me to think right thoughts, to think God's thoughts after him. All right, let's move now to our final section here, verses 23 through 28. And then we have the pronouns are you and I, you and I. So it's, so it's God and Asaph together. Verses 23 and 24 says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. It's great news there. These are wonderful things. Verses 23 and 24 are great verses to pray through. Notice the imagery. I'm with you. You hold me. You'll guide me. You'll receive me. Why is everything changed for Asaph? Because his focus is on the Lord. Please don't miss in this. Hopefully you're getting some different information out of this psalm. Please don't miss that everything shifted in this psalm in verse 17. Verse 17 is the transition. He went to the sanctuary of God. He got his focus on God. He got, he, he, he's seeing God. Now everything shifts. Verses 25 and 26. Whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart fail, but, my, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So the focus is God and God alone. You know, he doesn't say, you know, um, who do I have on earth? Well, I have you, and I have a cool house, and I have a nice car, and I have a vacation home. No, no, he says, it's all I have is you. My focus is all you. You're, and even he acknowledges, you know, the tent is breaking down, verse 26. You know, my flesh and my heart fail, but you're my strength. You're my heart. You're my portion forever. And so this reminds me of what we talked about last week, you know, when John chapter 6, and people were leaving Jesus, and Jesus said to his disciples, are you guys going to take off too? And, and Peter said, to whom shall we go? <laughs> who are we going to go? Who, once you've been with Jesus, who can you go to? Verse 27 and 28, for indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. For you have destroyed all those who desert you for a harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. So we kind of wrap up our time and in a moment we'll move into communion. We want to consider some things. Nothing has changed circumstance, circumstantially in the world of Asaph. Okay? It's not like all those people he complained about all of a sudden have re been revived. And, you know, and they're walking with the Lord. And so, so Asaph is saying now, like, well, now I can walk with you, Lord, because everything's going well around me. None of that's happened. The only thing that's changed is Asaph's focus is now on the Lord. That's the only thing that's changed. The storm is still going on in this world. If you and I are waiting to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, once things settle down on planet Earth, we'll never follow him. And so it's, it's all about choosing to follow the Lord, of drawing near to him, of having relationship with him. Right? It says in the scriptures that if you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. That if you seek him and search for him with all your heart, that you'll find him. And so the application from verses 27 and 28, especially 28, you know, it's good to draw near to him. I'll put my trust in him. I'll declare his works, is trust God and declare his works. 
the more that you and I declare God, you know, I'm sorry, trust God, we focus on God, the more naturally we're going to declare his works. You know, oftentimes, you know, in our Christian life, we kind of like, we've, we've heard all these things from different places, and you should be doing this, and you should be doing that, you should be doing the other. Let me just tell you, just seek the Lord. Just seek the Lord, and what's going to happen as he becomes the center of your focus, you're naturally going to do those things that God calls you to do. You're going to be walking in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. You're going to be talking about him and sharing stuff and discipling people. All of those things will happen as you put your focus on him. And, and so, you know, you look at here in this verse 28, you know, don't, don't imitate unbelievers. Just focus on the Lord and follow him. So by way of conclusion, I just want to have you turn to one last place. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6, kind of come full circle. And we're going to look at verses, I'm just going to read quickly through verses 25 through 34, because I believe that this is one of the most helpful places of setting our perspective on seeking the kingdom of God. So this is what Jesus says, Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature, or some of your translations say, can add one hour to his life? So, they, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day is its own trouble.